Miller College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. A beautiful Friday afternoon, far too nice to be studying books. October 29, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, continuing the study of Israel and the ancient Assyrians. Now, the, uh, we should begin today at uh, question 496. And this is the last years of the kingdom of Judah, English book from page 279 and the syllabus from question 496. When did the Assyrian Empire fall? Well, where did it fall? It fell in its footsteps of track. When did it fall? Mr. Benison, when did the Assyrian Empire fall? Six, twelve, and it fell so hard it could never get up again. This is the end, as far as they were concerned. And 612, captured, Nineveh destroyed by the forces of the upstart Babylon. And then, uh, this was not quite the end of the war, because, well, for this reason, not all the Assyrian army was there where, where Nineveh was when it was captured. And uh, some of their forces were other places. They regrouped and fought again. There were two more battles fought. And the last one, 605 B.C., the great battle of Carchemish, this race in world history along with the Waterloo changed the map of the world and it changed it permanently. Carchemish, 605 B.C. Now, uh, a little more about that war after a bit. Um, Unger raises the question, um, three kings of Judah in here, Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah. This is three in a row, father, son, grandson. And archaeology is almost a blank as far as these three men are concerned. Now, of course, we have a fairly complete history of these men in the Bible, but as far as any archaeological sidelights on this or evidence is concerned, there isn't. And does anyone recall why Hunger says this should be? Why do you have stuff about some kings and not about others? Mr. Mary? All right, now you see, uh, the people that misbehave that get written up in the papers. And people like us seldom get anything in the papers. So uh, these three kings were so completely under the shadow of Assyria, they didn't dare try anything. They weren't stepping out and trying anything. Technically, Judah was an independent country, but the Assyrians didn't think so. They were about as as independent as um, some of the satellite countries of the Soviet Union are today. Czechoslovakia is said to be an independent republic, and it's just sheer coincidence that their foreign policy just happens to agree with what Moscow wants. All the same, everybody knows the real reason for this. And um, so it was here. The uh, Assyrian scribes that wrote up their records on stones and clay tablets wasn't anything to write about because these things weren't doing anything. They were staying home and living in a very quiet manner as far as that theory was concerned. Now, Unger mentions the highest ambition of all Assyrians. This was a thing that went on for hundreds of years. What was the ultimate ambition that an Assyrian king could have? Was it to go to heaven when he died, or what was it? Mr. Brady? Conquer Egypt. You see, this is the other runner-up for supreme power. This is the sort of world series of ancient Near Eastern power politics, and uh, the, the contenders um, 
at this time are Egypt and Assyria, and Babylon is rising up into this, but uh, first of all, Egypt and Assyria. Now, um, Ashurbanipal, the last uh, truly great king of Assyria, and the famous for his large royal library, discovered 1853. This is from where we get the, the uh, Assyrian copies of the Babylonian creation story and the Babylonian flood story, found in the, the ruins of this library. Thousands of play tablets of all sorts of things, including these stories of the creation and of the flood. One of the strange things is that uh, this is stranger than fiction here, all right. They found one tablet with a piece missing, a triangle missing out of it, and years later went back and somebody found that piece and put it in. You couldn't do that uh, by planning to do it in many lifetimes, but it happened. And found a piece, and all that debris in fact fitted the missing place and completed the, the strip so it could be dead entirely. Now, um, coming back to the kingdom of Judah, here is the wickedest of all the kings of Judah, and whose son was he? This is Bible history, but uh, Mr. James, who was he? 501. The wickedest of all the kings of Judah. Well, uh, maybe it's pretty hard to be the wickedest among such competition, but <laughs> Manasseh, son of Hezekiah. Incidentally, uh, there was a tribe of Manasseh, but this man was not a member of the tribe and couldn't be. Why couldn't he be? Who were the kings of Judah descended from? All of them. Hmm? Judah, well, they descended from David, who was of the tribe of Judah. Manasseh was one of the northern tribes. Manasseh, son of Leah, the wild cow, you know. But then up there in the northern territory, and so this is merely a coincidence that this man has this name. He is a direct descendant of David, and therefore of the tribe of Judah. Now, his father was one of the best of men, Hezekiah, who the only thing wrong on record for him is he showed his royal treasures to the ambassadors from Babylon and sort of fell for their decline. This was a mistake of judgment rather than a real moral fault. This is not a a real moral failing, like his yielding to temptation to make sin. This was, a, this was an error of judgment. I mean, it was foolish rather than wicked. I'm not saying he was blameless in this, but um, everything else, he had a fine record. How do you explain that somebody uh, with as uh, fine a record as that has a son like this man, Manasseh? Now, did you ever know of children of godly Christian parents that kind of went bad before they grew up, or when they grew up? This happened, ever happened today? Well, I've known some very tragic cases of this. And some people have said, well, Hezekiah, you know, he's one of these busy people. He had no time for his family. So his son grew up wicked. This, I think, is an unfair charge. It's completely unproven, and um, I doubt it very much. And I don't think you can explain it. One thing about this fellow Manasseh, though, that um, puts him in a little bit better light. Uh, anybody think what it was? Yeah, he repented before he died. Does that make a difference about the eternal record and destiny of somebody? Uh, well, sure, if he was sincere and really repented. And the evidence is he, he was, because uh, God brought about his release from prison, and he went back and undid the wrong he'd done as far as he could. And he had 
No. This was appointed by God. The dynasty of David was to reign perpetually, and that uh, finally the last king, of course, the dynasty ran to an end. The last king was put in prison and never returned. But this is continued in the kingship of Jesus Christ on a higher plane. It says in Luke, the king of Gabriel said to Mary, she would have a son. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this, you could say, um, sublimated or translated to a higher plane is the true continuation of the dynasty of David. And it's, it's eternal and it's perfect, of course. But no, uh, in some countries this could be done. But the um, And uh, you have a trace of this, maybe. David... Uh, after that awful sin about Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, and that first baby that was born, you recall, died by everything they could do. This is the judgment of God. Then the next one was Solomon, and David promised Bathsheba that uh, this son of hers, this second one that lived, would be king. Now David, I'm sorry to have to tell you, had more than one wife. Not the way it ought to be done, but he did. And uh, David apparently used a little bit of, um, let's say, uh, his director's uh, prerogative here. But ordinarily, it would be the oldest son of each king. And if the oldest son uh, was incompetent or a half-wit or got killed in battle or something, well, then it would be the next son. And I think this is the way it was ordinarily done. And failing the son, then they'd go to lateral branches of the son, king's brother, king's nephew, like this. Now then, uh, this man, uh, Manasseh, he was really something. You name it, and he did it. Uh, he dabbled in, um, well, just to sum it up, uh, the occult, all sorts of uh, dubious and forbidden practices, astrology, spiritism, witchcraft, magic, all kinds of idolatry, uh, just about everything, a complete smorgasbord of evil practices, and he seemed to have an inveterate, um, oh, sort of a predilection or a leaning toward these forbidden occult practices, which are listed out in detail. Among other things, the burning his children in the fire as sacrifices to Moloch or to Baal on high places. He couldn't have burned them all because um, he had a um, son, a son that reigned after him. But, uh, Amos, but part of his children. One place it says his son in the Kings, I believe, and in Chronicles it says his children. So there was more than one. And 504 here, what light has archaeology shed on the practice of infant sacrifice to Moloch as practiced by Manasseh and others of his day? Now you realize this is a, a heathenish and savagely barbarous and inhuman practice of the Canaanites. This was stringently forbidden in the laws of Moses. You couldn't forbid anything with stronger language than is used against it. And yet here is one of a number of kings of Judah, well, two or three at least, that uh, fell into this practice. And you see, uh, discounting the revelation of God and picking up a uh, pagan, idolatrous, and uh, also inhuman practice of the Canaanites. Uh, the theory being, if you want something from your gods, you give them the best you have. You don't give them silver or gold, you give them one of your children. If the parents showed any grief uh, at the burning up of their little child, why, they just canceled the sacrifice, they had to take another baby and start all over again. 
I don't know. Mr. Jennison, would you say the devil had a pretty good grip on some people and make them do a thing like that? You know, this is, this is inhuman as well as irreligious. It's contrary to our common humanity. People love their children. What's the matter with people? Take their children and burn it up as a sacrifice to an idol. They're in the, the uh, very powerful grip of the sense of darkness. People will do a thing like that. Well, Manasseh did it. This is one of his sins. And all these other occult practices, Unger is quite an expert on this kind of thing, and he points out, this is 505 now, and 506, archaeology has found a great deal of evidence of this kind of thing. Now let me ask, are we Americans, um, know anybody in the United States that believes in astrology? Uh, huh. uh, our bookstore has some books on it. These books they're selling now are critical of itself. But uh, a while back, about three years ago, they had a series of books month by month on astrology that on how to test up your own horoscope, and once in January, once in February, you know, like this, and uh, in favor of astrology. And I looked at those, what's the Christian bookstore doing selling this kind of, of, uh, of stuff? And I told Reverend Willard McMillan, and he and I together sort of ganged up on them, well, they stopped selling them. One of the ladies down there said, well, you sell an awful lot of those books. Imagine it. Students in Geneva, you suppose they're buying this just for sort of a joke or that they really believe this nonsense? Well, what do you think, Mr. James? Do you think our genius students are really believe in astrology and horoscopes? Well, that's going some. What's the remedy for this? Get them converted? Get it, get it. Well, that's wrong, though, isn't it? Sure, I mean, uh, somebody said, you know, uh, Christian that thinks whiskey and gets drunk, he's a Christian, but he's a dirty Christian. <laughs> so it's an inconsistent kind of Christianity, so that's, a, that's a, the mildest thing you can say about it. Now, uh, Mesopotamia, tremendous amount of evidence for this in town. Mr. Denison. Yeah, sure, go ahead. What is it? Can you draw an analogy to the modern view of well, uh, abortion is done to avoid the bother of having a child, isn't it, or the expense. And this was done to ensure general good luck for a year by pleasing the God. I'm opposed to abortion. I'll tell you right now, I'm opposed to it. I think this is awesome. But then, uh, Dr. Tweed had a panel on abortion. One of your sisters was on this, wasn't it, last year? In Chinese? Yeah. Uh, he has saved all the material from this, including the tape recording, and keeping that panel together, they're going to update this and put it on again. And not only for college here, but they put it on in uh, churches and other groups around the area. And um, this has a similarity to abortion. The human life is unjustly sacrificed. But the motive for doing it is surely different. You know, abortion is legal in New York State now, and it's said to be performed about a thousand a month in the mostly New York City. And here in western Pennsylvania, where it's illegal, great big billboards between here and Erie, great big ones that you can see a uh, great distance. Abortion, and it gives a New York telephone number that you can call to get all the information as to how you can get this handled uh, in, a, in a place where it's legal. And uh, just in the bay, our state is um, in some danger of uh, more or less going to the devil, I think. Uh, they just uh, recently passed a state lottery law. We're going to have a state lottery now. Uh, this is to uh, raise money for worthy causes like education and everything. And all the same, it's a form of gambling. And is therefore 
not considered really welcome by Christian people, but you have a state lottery. And you wait, there'll be a strong effort to bring in a state law legalizing abortion in this state. And maybe it'll pass. I don't know. I hope it won't. Now, Mr. Davis. Well, the law will be given a specific purpose to the state when uh, Jesus becomes a living soul, when it's going to pass her, or is it Well, now I'll refer you to Mr. Tweed and this panel and the stuff they compiled, but apparently uh, Stone and the Ovum combined conception, and all the heredity of an individual is determined right from then, according to Mendel's law, dominant and recessive. After this, it's only a process of growth, <clears throat> and therefore to destroy a fertilized human egg cell um, is to destroy a human life. And as to the soul, uh, an infant is uh, not a personality, but is a latent personality. It has the rights of a personality. We would protect the feeble-minded, the half-witted, almost mindless adult. Can't be killed by so-called mercy killing, but a helpless infant in its mother's womb that uh, cannot do anything to defend itself can be abolished by a surgical operation. Some of that material Dr. Tweed has, it's enough to turn your stomach up. It's described by a nurse how this is done. Pull off her leg. Tear it off and throw it in a bucket and throw off an arm like that. And in, in Scandinavia, where this is terribly common, Sweden especially, uh, babies that are aborted are sometimes alive and cry for hours before they finally die, and the nurses aren't allowed to treat them as premature births to do anything. Leave them in that bucket until they die. Isn't it, isn't it uh, simply sickening? And of course, if people absolutely can't afford to have a child or raise a child, then they don't have to do what leads to conception. And there are methods of birth control if the person's face is not opposed to that absolutely, that will present this in a manner that does not destroy a life that has already begun. But um, abortion is the sign of the general moral decay of our age. Here, uh, you get the New Testament part of archaeology here. There's a letter found on a papyrus document in Egypt. Did I tell you about this? Egypt, a Roman official, in the Roman period of Egypt. And this is the Paris doctrine. About time of Christ, a little after, maybe 100 A.D. And this man, um, on separation home, talked with the Roman official in Egypt. And his wife is expecting the birth of a baby. And he sent her this letter. And it's filled with the most lovey-dovey, endearing language. First part. Then, when the baby is born, if it's a boy, save it alive, if it's a girl, pick it out and leave it by the side of the highway and abandon it. This practice called exposing infants was terribly common, cheaper than abortion, you know, terribly common, and wasn't even thought of as a, as a sin or a moral problem by the, the pagan Greeks and Romans, the Christian church and the Jewish faith. Both were, were absolutely opposed to this. People would, would hope that these infants could be picked up and adopted by somebody, usually, however, girl babies, raised by somebody and raised to be prostitutes. But uh, that's the kind of a world that Christianity came into, see, that had no moral conscience about a practice like that. And Christianity came with the moral law of God that said, this is, this is wicked, it's murder. And now we're thinking back into paganism again, things that for a thousand years Christian people have uh, said were wrong, and they think we're thinking back and saying maybe it's all right. 
And uh, the tendency to, today is not to argue this on the basis of principles of right and wrong, but on pragmatic principles. Does it work? Does it relieve the population experience? Uh, and so forth, like this. And this is another bad sign. Coming off the high ground and talking about it on, on pragmatic rather than wrong and wrong. So you know what I think about abortion now. And in this way, Yes, he is, and I don't know just when or where, but he is, and every time I find anything on this, a new article or something, a press report, I give it to him. He's trading it, and Chris, he won't own anything like this. Give it to Dr. Sweet. He won't do as well as he gets, but he's uh, assembling materials on this to update and improve this, and he also has a tape recording of it from last year. And, uh, and I have a tape recording of it, too. And this is um, certainly a live subject. And... Uh, it's a subject that Christian students in a Christian college ought to think about and form, let's say, um, solid convictions about on the basis of their acceptance of the Bible as the, as the Word of God and the small laws of binding on it. And I think Dr. Seed had a, this is a lot of extra work for him and all, this isn't quite as loaded as a teacher, he's a good doctor. This is a real service to the college and community that he worked us up in the and got these students lined up for this. They do it. Well, there's still five of them. He's got a part on this, and he moderated it. How many were they? Yeah, yeah besides himself. Yeah, he's still a little less than he's dead. And especially now, he's dead. He's in place now. Is he trying to get you on? I'm on. You're on already. We had a faculty panel on capital punishment, and I was very disgusted that the members of faculty that argued against capital punishment did so exclusively on non-biblical grounds. It's gone down to expediency. What's your question, Mr. Mayor? Well, it was, um, how was it? Yeah, but then they had the second set of There was an equal length of time almost in which questions from the audience were fielded and the difference they were directed to different members of the panel and answered and then sometimes further discussion and further answer. So it has to turn the equivalent to a long conversation in this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Everybody that was there listening to this, this is highly um, relevant to the kind of uh, oh, um, questions they get asked today. So, Mr. Hayes. I just wanted to point out that uh, the discussion on Vietnam actually about the city, although it might be a good question, still, you may have been supporting our war. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't be now. That was a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A good deal has um, become obvious about <clears throat> the Vietnam War that wasn't a year ago. President Xi believes in democracy and represents the people of Vietnam in the same manner as a hijacker of an airplane represents the passengers on that plane. Is this a fair statement? Well, I think it is. Let me tell you, Vietnam is no democracy. <clears throat> Communist China is no democracy. They never even elected a drug tester yet. Well, they years. Everything is done by little, little uh, groups of politics. 
I'm not questioning on me. God man, you know this, hold the back out theology. Alright. Now look. Um. We have a second verse another day, but Second Chronicles 33 states the Assyrians deported Manasseh as a prisoner to Babylon. Many critics have held this must be a mistake. Babylon was not the capital of Assyria. Babylon, of course, was Babylon. And if the Assyrians captured him and took him someplace, they would have taken him to Nineveh. Therefore, Babylon must be a mistake. Now, is this necessarily a mistake? Well, at this time, who was in control of Babylon? Well, Mr. Thompson, the Assyrians. Esther hadn't, inscriptions had been found. He captured the city and rebuilt it and made it say, let's say, a satellite of, of Assyria. So if the local cops arrest you, they can put you in the county jail or they can send you to a uh, state penitentiary or some other place, but it doesn't make any difference. You're in the cooler anyhow. And so there's no reason why the Assyrians that controlled Babylon at this time shouldn't have put him in Babylon if they wanted to do so. Now, in the time of Josiah, the incidentally, the great grandson of Hezekiah, the last good king they had, he only had seven decades, the book of the law was found. They were restoring the temple of the Lord after a long period of neglect and abuse. The temple built in Solomon's time uh, was already, uh, let's say, two to three hundred years old, and therefore obviously in need of some facelifting just on account of ordinary wear and tear. Apart from that, it has been neglected. Now I wonder, uh, Ms. Barrett, when does a house um, go to pieces work? When it's locked up and closed, or when does a family live in there? Do you own any houses and rent them out? <laughs> Uh, anybody know the answer to that? Hmm? Yeah, that's true. You'd think a family living in it, you know, kids to make crayon marks on the walls and everything and go to pieces faster, but it doesn't. A house that's shut up, in the first place, dampness goes to work on it, mold and everything, and secondly, if any windows or anything get broken, nobody fixes them. A house that's being lived in, if the window gets broken, they fix it. If the door comes off its hinges, they put on new hinges. And if there's a hole in the floor, they fix it up with a new board. Or something. So uh, you could say the temple got much worse from being closed up and neglected during part of this period than uh, merely from from its age and so forth. It would have been in better shape if they'd have been using it from day to day than if it was closed up and off limits like this. Now then, in the renovating of the temple, a book was found. The workmen found it. They gave it to Hilkiah the priest. He brought it to Josiah the king, who had it read. Hilda the prophetess that she lived in Jerusalem with her husband in the college. I asked the class once, what kind of college is that? And the student in the rear row said, Covenanter College, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the college. This could be the Geneva Arms of Jerusalem, the apartment house. Her husband had charge of the priest's wardrobe. This was a big job. And care of all these vestments, get them cleaned them in order, and so forth. And she and she was a prophetess, and she gave the verdict of the will of the Lord about this book of the Son. Now, it is called a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And critics of the Bible have widely claimed that this was the book of Deuteronomy, that it was not by Moses at all, but um, ghost written. You could say the ink was scarcely dry on the thing. 
It had been planted in the temple in the hope that it would be found, and briefly this story, which has variants, but the simplest form of it, a group of religious Jewish priests got uptight about the state of religion, and all this worshiping on the high places over the country, you know, here and there, at semi-pagan altars, and decided, they got together and decided we'll never get religion right like it ought to be, so we get it centralized right here in Jerusalem where it's under our thumb, we can keep our eye on it and control it. But how are you going to do this? This worship at these high places is popular as anything. It has the sanction of antiquity. And uh, how are we going to do it? We just issue an order. No more worshiping at the high places. You come to Jerusalem to worship God. It's been tried before. It doesn't work. But if we would put out a, um, well, the name of Moses carries some weight. If we would just write a book and sign Moses' name to it and put it out and get the common people to take it for the genuine writing of Moses, we might sell this reform to the people. So they go through a book as if by Moses and they would claim that this is the book of Deuteronomy in our Bible. And this book strongly emphasizes the single sanctuary idea. Now, I think Moses really wrote it and it was written when they were out in the wilderness and emphasizes that when they get settled in that promised land, they can no longer worship all around like they had before under wilderness conditions, but there will be one place where God would put his name, that is where the altar and the tabernacle would be. But the critics say, uh, these fellows ghost wrote this book, strongly emphasizing the single sanctuary idea, planted it in the temple, in the, but not too deep, in the hope that it would be found among the trash and rubble, and it was found, and the people then actually bought this as the genuine writing of Moses, and so this religious reform was accomplished, at least for a while. Now, there are all sorts of things to say about that, and one is that this represents a psychological contradiction in this. It represents these priests as being so concerned about truth that they're willing to tell some lies to promote it. Does that make sense? To people who are all out for truth go around telling lies. Well, of course they don't. And that doesn't work. Now, there's three possibilities about this book. Uh, if you take it as a genuine writing of Moses, the first is it had simply been lost. It never had more than three or four copies at one time, and most people couldn't even read, probably. It had simply been lost during one of the reign of one of his bad kings and was, was, was discovered and found. That's one possibility. Second possibility that it had been hidden in the temple intentionally for safekeeping during the reign of Manasseh or one of the other bad kings. That's a possibility. The third possibility is one that Dr. Unger advocates that this had been deliberately placed in a cornerstone of the temple in the time of Solomon when the temple was built. And he cites archaeological evidence to show that this was a well known and commonly used practice. Now, the Matheny Field House, you know. So we win basketball games and even make Westminster College bite the dust. Um, you know, <laughs> the Matheny Fieldhouse, when this was starting to be built, they had a ceremony there to lay a cornerstone. And here's a big platform, you know, and Congressman Clark was there and the mayor of Beaver Falls and Michael Baker Jr. and other important people and um, had this ceremony of laying a cornerstone. This cornerstone was hollow and it had a bronze or brass uh, box in their vault which could be set tight and fastened. And in this, they put the Geneva College cabinet and um, uh, American flag and uh, local and Pittsburgh newspapers, Constitution of the United States, the college catalog, and I don't know what all else, and the Bible. They called on me. They had the Bible department, put a Bible in there. I figured nobody will ever see it, so I went to the bookstore and said, what's the cheapest Bible yourself? 
So I got one for a couple of dollars, and that's in there yet. Now this practice is ancient. It was even ancient in Solomon's day. It had been done for hundreds of years before that. So it is quite possible that this uh, book that was found in the temple was found where it had been put. And uh, perhaps this cornerstone had worked loose. Maybe the mortar that uh, cemented this in place had to be replaced. Except they thought, well, you know, there's a book in here. And so it was discovered. This is not proof, but it is certainly quite possible. Now then, then Josiah, what happened to this guy? I asked a student once what happened to a certain man and he said he died. And you're on first man saying that. What happened to Josiah? Well, he died. But <laughs> at the end of his life. There's only been two exceptions to this. Enoch and Elijah. Now, as to the circumstance of the death, what was he doing? Well, I'll save time by telling you. I'm sure you've all stayed up nearly all night studying this. But then. At this time, Pharaoh Necho, or Necho, king of Egypt, wanted to cross Palestine. And it says in the Bible he was going to Megiddo against the king of Assyria. This is in Second Kings chapter 23, verse 29. Against the king of Assyria. This, however, is beyond any doubt whatever a mistranslation here or a different kind of a use of the word against. It was a three-cornered power politics struggle going on. Assyria, that had been the boss for 200 years. Babylon, the runner-up, that had destroyed Sinatra in 612. And the third great power was Egypt. Now, when this great battle, the final showdown was fought, question And to get there, you see, it says against the king of Assyria. This is a little like you're saying, I'm putting this money in a savings account against the day when I'll get married. the appearance of the words there in, in the king. And um, Josiah did not want uh, anybody to go there to help um, the Babylon finally win this. He didn't want anybody to go there and help Assyria against Babylon. Assyria was good uh, as old enemy. Now, Babylon was even worse, but it hadn't happened yet. They didn't know how bad Babylon was going to be, so they thought it'd be better. When Fidel Castro came to power in Cuba, nearly all American news commentators thought he'd be a great improvement over what they had before because the previous guy was so bad, Batista. But they found out later that Castro was even worse. Now, Babylon was the runner-up here in this three-pointed contest. Veronico uh, was going to, to help the Assyria what was left of Assyria against Babylon and Josiah didn't want him to do it because Assyria was good as old enemy and he didn't want anybody to help them. And the prophet of God told Josiah to stop it, let it be, but he went anyhow and at the pass of Megiddo he was killed. He was brought back to Jerusalem in a chariot in a dying condition and died when they got there. Now two empires collapsed for all time, Assyria and Egypt. Assyria is nothing anymore. And Egypt, well, they play in the farmers, they don't play in the World Series anymore. 
And so uh, Babylon was left the supreme and undisputed champion of the field. This meant that the kingdom of Judah got out from under one imperialistic tyranny only to get under another. What good is that? You get out from being beaten up by Mr. A only to be beaten up by Mr. B. Okay. Uh, from being under Assyria, well, now they're under Babylon. But still, they're not independent or free. Now, that's where we're stopping. This is the past 14 was launched in my mind. You can bet the uh, tragic news to the rest of the class if you see them at the test of April 21 week.